Please follow as I read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, the words of Paul. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Good morning. So this summer we're, we spent out in Colorado most of the time, and there was one point where we traveled from the southwest part of the state towards the central part of the state, and we had spent a couple weeks in the San Juan Mountains. San Juan Mountains in southwest Colorado are just absolutely spectacular. I'd never spent much time there, and they were just dramatic and rugged and breathtaking. And we were heading to the Elk Mountains where the Maroon Bells are, also very nice mountains. But in this space in between, we went through a, a place called Crawford, Colorado, and to meet an old colleague of mine and her kids and have a picnic lunch. And, and Crawford's in, if those are the spectacular mountains, Crawford's is kind of the gentle mesas, the little bit of valleys. It's what I would consider the flatlands. Under any other circumstance, I think this would be an absolutely gorgeous place, but we had gotten spoiled in the San Juans. This felt like we were somewhere closer to the real world. Rather than RVs everywhere we could look, there was uh, fruit farms, there was ranches, there was people getting on with the day-to-day -day life uh, that was happening. But I realized as I looked at my map that we were only probably like 20 minutes away from the Black Canyon of Gunnison National Park. I don't know if you've heard of that. It's one of the lesser-known national parks out west, but I, I had heard about it. My friend had, had suggested we go there. So after we went to this picnic, we headed out on this very unassuming drive to get to the national park. You go in the entrance. It doesn't look like most entrances to national parks I'm used to. And we parked our car, parked our van, and we walked down this, this path to get to the rim of the canyon. And all of a sudden, I came upon the canyon, and I could only, what I could only describe is I just felt overwhelmed by what I saw. I found myself peering into this massive gorge, these, these rock walls that plunged 2,000 feet down to the Gunnison River. And I'd, I saw spectacular landscapes all summer, but nothing took my breath away like this vista. I told Krishana later, as I reflected on this, I think maybe for the first time in my life, I understood why often in the Bible, when people encounter God, they want to back up. They want to cover themselves. Maybe they fall to the ground. I felt something like fear, not of fear I was afraid of my life, but fear that I was so small and something in the face of something overwhelming. I thought, I understand. This is a tiny little fraction of what they experienced 
and they encountered God. And I thought what maybe a lot of people think when you come to such a dramatic drop-off, man, I wonder what a fall would be like, what a plunge. Wouldn't that be a horrible thing? Here's a, Russell, can you put up that picture of the, the picture's not going to do justice. I almost thought about not putting it up. But here it is, the Black Canyon of Gunnison. It's called the Black Canyon because that, that very bottom, you can see down there, hopefully it's black, it's dark. It only gets 33 minutes of direct sunlight a day. It just falls so steeply and rises so steeply. And you'll notice that it's shaped as a V, right? It kind of goes down, makes a sharp, and then it goes almost straight up with a slight angle. It's Russell. We've been in the, the letter to the Philippians for over a month now. I feel like we've been kind of moving through the mesas, the valleys, the, maybe the flatlands of this letter. And all of a sudden, I want you to see that Paul has taken us up and had us peer down into the most stunning canyon you can imagine. There's this, uh, if, you, if you're looking in your Bible in Philippians 2, you'll see that this is kind of bracketed off. This is often considered a hymn. It's a little bit different than the rest of the Scripture. And you'll notice, I want you to notice as we... Go, as we follow this passage, we're going to make a steep, steep descent, like a V. And we're going to hit absolute rock bottom. And then we're going to make, a, make a, just as steep of an ascent, just like a V. We're going to go down, we're going to go up. I, I imagine, like, I thought this would be awesome if this, we could have, like, roller coaster harnesses drop down at this point, and we could, like, make this an immersive, full-bodied experience descent. Um, but we don't have that technology yet. So you're going to, but I want you to go there in your mind, right? We're going to make a steep plunge and then we're going to go up. That's where we're going today. So our journey today starts at the highest of highs. Verse 6, who, talking about Jesus, being in very nature God. So remember, Paul is writing to a Roman colony where I've noted that nothing matters more than honor and status. And Paul begins his hymn by saying that Jesus was at the top of the ladder. Jesus is at the top of the heap. You can't get any more status or any more honor than equality with God, and that's where Jesus started. But Paul continues, yet Jesus did not consider equality something to be used to his own advantage. So Jesus had all the glory. Jesus had all the power. Jesus had all the status that comes with equality with God, but how does he use it? Does he use it for himself? He uses it for others. And think about it, isn't that exactly what we see in the Gospels? I mean, Jesus, he, he doesn't, he has incredible power in the incar incarnated form, in his incarnation. For example, he can miraculously produce food, right? He can take, produce bread and fish and all these things. But when does he do it? Does he do it in the desert for himself when he's alone? Does he turn the stone into bread when he's hungry? No. When does he do it? He does it for others. He does it up on the hill, up on the picnic, when he feeds the thousands of people with the bread and the fish. When the disciples' lives are threatened by the storm, what does Jesus do? He calms it. He rebukes the storm. He saves their lives. When Jesus is in the garden, his life is being threatened. At his disposal, at least in Matthew, we read that he has 12 legions of angels. At any time, he can call those angels. Does he call them? No. Jesus, uh, as he moves to the cross, and on the cross he's spit on, he's taunted, he's mocked. Jesus has every right to defend himself. He's silent. But think about it. Throughout the Gospels, 
when those who do not have power and do not have status, women and children and prostitutes and lepers and outsiders, when they're attacked, Jesus comes to their defense. Again and again, we see this fleshed out in Jesus' life. He takes his honor, he takes his power, he takes his status, and he uses it not for himself, but for others. And in doing so, he moves downward. It doesn't stop there. The plunge continues. Rather, uh, Look at verse 7. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This word for servant, I pointed this out at the, the first verse Paul uses. I think a better word is actually slave, because that's what it literally means in Greek, doulos, slave. So not only does Jesus give up his honor, give up his power, give up his status, but when he, did, when he comes to earth, he takes on the nature of a slave. He starts out at the top of the heap. You cannot get any higher than where he started, and yet he chooses somewhere to go the lowest of the lows. If someone, you know, if someone asked you and I, like, what's the worst thing about being a slave? What would be the worst thing about being a slave? We likely would say we have no freedom. We're trapped. Whatever our master wants us to do, we have no choice in that. We have no freedom. We have no autonomy. And that would obviously be awful. But for the people reading uh, Paul's letters, for them, that's, that wouldn't be the worst thing. Remember, they're a Roman colony. They care about status. They care about honor. The worst thing for them is the shame. There's nothing more shameful than being a slave in their mind. They're an honor status, uh, honor conscious, status conscious, Roman colony. And, and, and in their world, there's nothing lower than a slave. And yet that's the, that's the form that Jesus takes on, according to Paul. Jesus moves downward. You see this, we're moving down. We're going down the V. We're getting lower and lower and lower. We haven't hit bottom Verse 8, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Even death on a cross. I don't know if that, that doesn't probably give us the shock that it probably should, even on a cross. If anything, typically when we get to the crucifixion and we think about it, what do we imagine the worst part of crucifixion is? Usually, the, usually for us, it's usually the pain, the physical torture that Jesus experienced. That's understandable. We're kind of, we live in a society obsessed with comfort, right? We cannot imagine how painful that would be. But for them, that wasn't the worst part. Lots of people were crucified. Jesus was one of thousands of people crucified. There was nothing really particularly unusual about that. What was shocking was the humiliation of the cross. Again, this is the most he is the most shameful nature you can have, the slave, and he dies in the most shameful way. In many upper echelons of the society, you don't even talk about crucifixion. It's not something you talk about in polite company. And yet, this is the point Jesus descends to. This is the humiliation that Jesus goes to. There is no lower place that Jesus can descend. This is the absolute bottom. Jesus has plunged from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. How strange this must have sounded to the Roman world. How strange this must have sounded to, to people who were steeped in their own stories about God, but, but their stories didn't go like this one. In, in Christian theology, we call this kenosis, which means self-emptying. The one who had a quality with God emptied himself, poured out his honor, poured out his status, poured out his power, for the benefit of others. That would have sounded really strange because that's not typically how things worked in their world. 
God's didn't lower them to the, the status of humans, let alone a slave. If anything, it worked the other way around. Some humans, particularly the, 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 uh, in the imperial family, the Caesar, they actually aspired to become gods themselves. There was this idea that a few people, the elites in society, could actually cross that line from human to God. It's called apotheosis. It means to make God. So royalty in their world can become God, but kenosis, God becoming a slave, would have been a strange thing to hear. And they had their own stories about gods. They had, their, they had a, a number of gods. One of them you probably are familiar with is the god Zeus. If you know, I did a little bit of reading about Zeus. Zeus first comes into power by overthrowing and killing his own father, Cronus as a revenge for Cronus eating Zeus's sibling. It's dark. And then Zeus marries, but Zeus is worried that that child that his wife is, is carrying is going to then turn on him, so he swallows his wife. Zeus wasn't just vindictive. He was, he was most known for being the most promiscuous god. He created lots of strife and jealousy. His weapon was the, the lightning bolt which he could use to smash others. As Lynn Coick says, gods and goddesses in this time, they use their power to subdue others. They use their power to take advantage of weakness. They didn't look like this god. And enter into this story, this strange picture of a god who God in Christ descends from the highest place to the lowest place of humiliation. And it probably doesn't shock us the way it should. I think some of our work, our, our, our big task today is to go up to that canyon and peer down it and feel some vertigo. This becomes too domesticated in our minds. It's too comfortable. We've got to do some work to walk up to that canyon and be stunned by what we're seeing. Let me ask you a question. What is your God like? your God like? Is your God like Zeus? Vindictive, unfaithful, exploits human for his own purposes? Like, does your God care about you? Can your God be trusted? Is your God even for you? If you say yes, how do you know this? How do you know this? How do you know your God's not like Zeus? Because Paul is saying, look down that chasm. Look down there. There's your king. There's your God. There's your savior. He's played upon the rocks. What kind of God would do such a thing? What kind of God would take such a plunge? A God, this is so, we've got to embrace it. Our God's character is that of self-emptying. Our God's character is that of love, of sacrifice. This isn't a God who stands aloof, far in the sky, removed from his creation, indifferent to the suffering, indifferent to those who are experiencing injustice in our world and humiliation and all the dark chasms of our world right now. No, this is a God that stands in solidarity with him. God has been there. God has been to the very humiliating bottom of the chasm. Remember, it's no wonder Matthew's gospel where does Jesus say we're likely to find him? Where are we going to bump into Jesus? 
Are we going to bump into Jesus at the White House or the palaces around the world or in L.A. with the celebrities or with the wealthy? Like, is that where we're going to bump into Jesus? At least according to Matthew, most likely place we're going to bump into Jesus is with the hungry, is with the stranger, is with the naked, is with the sick, is in prison with prisoners. That's where we're going to bump into Jesus. Just as fast as Paul takes us to these stunning depths, he's going to turn things, he's going to make a rocketing upward blast to the highest of highs. It's a stunning reversal. Again, we don't, know, we don't see it right away, but I want you to see a stunning reversal in this passage. Verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. This word exalted literally means hyper-elevated. So from the lowest of lows that we've traveled to, now, now Jesus, through, by God's, has been elevated to the highest of highs. And he's been bestowed upon him the name above every name, a name that every knee will bow to in creation, above heaven, below heaven, and on earth. Every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Who's Lord? Who's Lord to the Philippians? Is it the ruler of the most powerful empire on earth, the Roman Empire? Is it the man who would be changed into a god? No, it's the crucified slave. That's who's Lord. That's who everyone's bowing before. Imagine what this must have sounded like to the church in Philippi. This is a ragtag group of people. This is a group that is, people probably don't even realize they're there in in this city of Philippi. They are a small little community. And what we've already seen is they're being battered from the outside. When people are aware of them, there's hostility that's given to them from the outside, and now they're having hostility on the inside. This, this God to the Philippians is a joke to the people in Philippi. And right now, I'm sure the people in Philippi feel pretty powerless and insignificant. And Paul is coming and saying, it's not always going to be like that. Because one day, the entire universe is going to acknowledge what you know now. Jesus is Lord. And think about it, when you, when, for the Philippians who are being oppressed or anybody in this world right now is being oppressed, think how good news this is. One of my favorite songs, uh, uh, sung by Andrew Peterson, is written by Ben Scheid, is called Remember Me. And the chorus comes from the words that the thief on the cross uses when he turns to Jesus and he says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. But my favorite verse is the last verse of the song where Ben Scheid is imagining kind of Jesus on the cross and, and looking ahead to one day. So here he is in his humiliation, in his pain, in his suffering, as he bears the sins of the world, but there's an image he has in his, in his mind of one day, and this is it. When the sun will stand on the mount again with an army of angels at his command, and the earth will split like the hole of a seed wherever Jesus plants his feet. And up from the earth the dead will rise like spring trees clothed in petals of white, singing the song of the radiant bride. We will always be, always be, always be with the Lord. My favorite line is this image of Jesus coming back, of Jesus on the mount again, but this time he's got an army of angels with him. This time when Jesus steps, every step Jesus takes on earth, it's like stepping on the hole of a seed and opening it up. Jesus might have gone down to the depths and been crucified like a lamb, but he is coming back like a lion. 
And just like we need to peer into the depths to know the depths, the low that our, our, our Lord went for us, we also got to look upward. We've got to look upward and into the future, into a scene where every knee will be bowed before Jesus Christ. And somehow we've got to figure out how these things work together. How does a God hold these together? How does a God hold the lowest of lows and the highest of highs together? Is that not an incredible thing? That our God will, will descend to the very depths of humiliation in his character, but in the same God will be every knee will bow. In these two sentences, Paul gives us just a stunning snapshot of the gospel, of Jesus taking on the flesh, of coming to earth, of dying on the cross, and now being exalted to the highest place. It's stunning, and it should leave us gasping. But I want to, try, I want to see if I can bring things a little closer to home here, because that's exactly what Paul does. So this hymn doesn't sit in isolation. Remember, this is the benefit of going through a whole letter. This hymn is right in the middle of a letter. And, and the last, last week we looked at, Paul is calling this community of believers, these followers of Jesus and Philippi, to unity and to serving each other, to putting the interest of the other one above themselves. And so now, right before he gives this hymn, he says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul wants this community in Philippi, he wants them to, to look at this stunning landscape that we've seen, of Jesus' selflessness, his humility, his obedience, and he wants them to follow that example. He takes them down to the canyon, he said, look, look at this humiliation. And he takes them up and he says, look at the exaltation. And then it's like he takes them back to the flatlands, he says, you've got to work this out in the flatlands. You've got to work this out in the land of, of school and work and dirty dishes and dirty diapers. You've got to work this out in the land where your coworkers annoy you and you just do not get your family members. You've got to work this out in the flatlands. You've got to work this out in the space where day-to-day -day life happens. You've got to work out what you just saw when you peered in the canyon and saw the humiliation of Christ. And when you looked up and saw the day when every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. You've got to work this out in really the tedious, and the boring, and the painful, and the, really this, the moments of life that just are not glamorous. You've got to work it out on the flatlands. Andy Crouch is one of my favorite writers. I was listening to an interview with him, but he, he, wrote, he talks about this in the book he wrote a number of years ago, about how one can make the case that the two most influential women of the 20th century, at least the most widely known at the time, were a British princess named Diana, an Albanian nun named Teresa. And both these women, Princess Diana and Mother Teresa, interestingly died within a week of each other. And Crouch says that these two women are kind of like mere images of what we want to be as a human being. But they took utterly different paths to influence and celebrity. Almost everyone he said at the time wanted to be like Diana. But no one can be like Diana. Only one person gets to marry the Prince of Wales. And let's be honest, we don't look like Diana. We don't have Diana's charm. We have no chance to be like Diana. But, but Crouch says... You have Teresa of Calcutta, and everyone can be like her. Because she's a saint. And anyone can be a saint if they open themselves up to Jesus. He says, Crouch says, we have not lacked for models of godly power. We just don't want the suffering that comes with it. 
We don't want the long stretches of anonymity and ineffectiveness and humiliation of being like our Lord. Mother Teresa, don't, don't, don't get this wrong. Mother Teresa wasn't in our mind because she was perfect. If you, if you read about Mother Teresa, she could be difficult to work with. She could be harsh with those who worked with her. And Mother Teresa wasn't a saint because she had perfect faith. Mother Teresa struggled with her faith. She went through a stretch of almost 50 years of feeling like she'd been abandoned by God. Being a saint isn't about being perfect. Being a saint is about participation in the life of Jesus that will inevitably take us on a downward path. The opposite way of where we want to go. See, we as humans innately from almost the, 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 the moment we're born, we have a desire to go up. We have a desire for, for others to serve us. We have a desire to look out for our own interests. We are by nature, let's be honest, full of selfish ambition and vain conceit. And we almost always value ourselves above others. We have this drive to accumulate status and accumulate power and accumulate wealth, and we use it for ourselves. We use it for our own comfort, for our own successes, for our own status. We all have our little kingdoms. Don't think this is just celebrities and wealthy. We all have our little kingdoms where we have power and we have influence and we have money, and our drive is to use that for ourselves. And then there comes Jesus. And Jesus flips on its head everything we know about how the world works. The one who had all the power and all the privilege and equality with God, what does he do with it? What does he do with his kingdom? How does he use it? Does he use it for himself, as we're so prone to do? Does he use it to dominate his creatures? No, he pours it out. He pours it out in self-sacrificial love and service to others. Paul will not allow us to see this stunning descent in the abstract. He will not allow us to look at Jesus and say, that glad that isn't me. Paul says, imitate Jesus, just as Pat said. Follow Jesus. Be like Jesus. As I heard a preacher say this summer, it's a lot easier to look like Jesus than be like Jesus. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Jesus' life and death is a singular life and death. You and I will not live like Jesus, and we will not die like Jesus. But Paul says that we are to have the same mind as Christ Jesus. That means our lives should be about giving, not getting. Our lives should be about serving others and not being served. Our lives should be not be about seizing power and status and privilege for ourselves, but pouring it out for the benefit of others. It means, as Lynn Coick says, as disciples of Jesus, there is no task that is beneath us. There is no task that is below our grade because we're disciples was there any task that was below jesus pay grade was there any task that was just a little too low for jesus no if we are disciples of jesus we take that on let me give you an example sometimes christiana will need me to watch the kids she's going to go do something very reasonable request and if i'm kind of like hesitating for a second she'll say like can you babysit your kids and it's funny, and it's a bit of a jab, because when I watch my kids, I'm not babysitting, right? I'm being who I am. I'm being their dad. Like, you don't need to pat me on the back for watching my kids. You don't need to give me an accolade for watching my kids. I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm not doing something beneath me. Those of us, and if you are a disciple of Jesus, I'm talking to you, those of us whose identity is in Christ, we cannot divide our life into two parts. We cannot say, this is the part I serve others, and this is kind of my regular life. 
This is when I go volunteer at the soup kitchen for a couple hours a week, and this is when I get back to my life. That's not, that's not who we identify as disciples. We can't split our lives up like that. It means there's nothing below us. There's no task we can do that is below our pay grade or below us. When we serve others, we're not really doing anything special. We're doing what we're called to do as followers of Jesus. We shouldn't need accolades for serving others because that's what you do as a disciple. And when the thought comes to our mind, and it comes to all of ours, at least it comes to mine, I think this is a little bit below me. I think this thing I'm about to do is pretty humiliating. What you do is you have Paul, you have him walk you over to that canyon, and you have, you, you have you peer down that canyon, and you look at the humiliation of Christ. You look at Christ's stunning descent. You look at the one who had everything and gave it up to be a slave and die on a cross, and then you walk back to the flatlands with a different perspective. You walk to that canyon with your self-pity and with your pride and with your need for recognition. You walk to that canyon like we all have. You peer down that canyon. You get some perspective, and you walk back down out to the flatlands and work that out. When you're tempted to ask that question, I think we all ask this question, is this God really good? Can I really trust this God? Does this God really have my best interest in mind? You go with Paul, and you walk down to the canyon, and you look down it, and you see the humiliation of Christ. You see Christ's descent, and you say, man, that is a God of self-giving love and sacrifice. That God is for me. That God went as far as that God could go for me. And you walk back to the flatlands, secure again in the love of Christ. And when you're tempted to lose perspective, when you're tempted to, to get caught up in the trappings of the world, when your priorities go awry, when you're just, maybe you're just tired from the discipleship journey. Maybe you're just worn out. Maybe you're tempted to despair in your faith. Maybe as a lot of people you know are walking away from the faith and you're, you're despairing. You're going to look up. You're going to put things into perspective. You're going to see a scene in which the Son of Man stands on a mount an army of angels at his command, and the earth splitting with the whole of the seed wherever Jesus plants his feet. You allow yourself to be overwhelmed with the dizzying effect of seeing where things are going. You allow yourself to be humbled and excited and sober. You're going to walk back to the flatlands. You're going to work that out in your life.